With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of New Books and Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted today to have as my guest Tyler Cowan, professor of economics at George Mason University. Uh, he also has a podcast, Conversations with Tyler, as well as a uh, blog, Marginal Revolution. Tyler is a uh, prof- prolific author, uh, many books, many articles. You can see him um, in the New York Times, on Bloomberg, and many different places. He's a foodie and uh, is a person of many interests. But today we're going to discuss a book of his that came out last year uh, called Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Anti-Hero. And it's just come out in paperback as we speak, and so uh, now available to an even broader audience. Uh, Tyler Collin, thank you so much for, for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. So as we were discussing before we began the uh, uh, as a, a podcast host, a book review podcast host, so I get a lot of books on finance and economics, and, and 90% of them easily uh, are about inequality in the American system. And uh, it's fine that that observation is, is apropos, uh, but your book stood out as sort of taking the other side and highlighting the, uh, the good that is generated by our current system specifically, um, that which is often vilified the most on the other end, which is big business, you, you take the opposite, uh, opposite side of that argument. Do you, can you kind of introduce how you got to that and, and uh, the, you know, the broad outlines of that argument? I view my book as a contrarian book that shouldn't have to be a contrarian book. What I've observed over the last 20 years is that American attitudes toward big business have become more negative each year whether it's attacks on big tech or claims that the whole economy is full of monopolies or the argument that finance doesn't do anything productive or banks are not productive, uh, public opinion simply has been switching more and more in that direction. So I thought it's time to sit down, look at all of the actual facts. How much monopoly is there? How honest is big business? How is American productivity compared to other countries? And so on. Uh, what are the useful functions of big tech? And look at the overall record. And the subtitle of my book is A Love Letter to Big Business. I found most of the facts paint a pretty positive picture of what American big business is up to. And it, it's, uh, uh, you know, you go through, you hit all the, all the villains and kind of de-villainize them. But underneath and in the very beginning, there's also kind of a, a point that you circle uh, back to at the very end. And that's about the, the importance of trust 
trust as a social virtue, which we all uh, agree on. But then you tie trust into basically business success and link the, the uh, success of these large enterprises to, to a trust relationship, which I, I found fascinating. Can you, can you kind of elaborate on that as well? Well, successful businesses manufacture trust within the business. Workers have to trust their bosses and each other to some extent, but also the customers have to trust. So if I buy something from Amazon, essentially I know it will appear uh, with very high probability. That's a large part of what makes Amazon work. So one virtue of big business is for the most part, it rewards people who have a propensity to be cooperative and to teach each other how to trust other people. And that's overall good for American society. There was, a, you know, years ago, I encountered uh, Francis Fukuyama, one of his books uh, called Trust. And, uh, you know, he was making a, a similar argument, but more on a, a, a cross comparative political cross comparative system you know various uh, Italy France China Japan as to countries in the 19th and 20th century where they could develop trust relations generally did better than those that didn't that either only were limited to family or government and there are many countries where those are the two options and there's not much in between whereas uh, a trust relationship whether based on a, a legal agreement or just basic trust uh, will allow you to do business with somebody else, and the result was growth and significant differentials in in economic growth. And I, I was just struck by that. Uh, you know, his argument. I don't know if it received much uh, coverage. It was, the book came out 30, 20, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, but here again, trust not not kind of the University of Chicago uh, uh, rational actor theory, uh, not quantitative. Economics, but trust comes out to be, an, you know, a key component of this argument about the success of big business. And very few people would uh, view that as the case. And yet, you make a compelling argument that that is so. I think one reason American business is so productive is that it's able to delegate authority. So not everything has to go through the entire bureaucracy because there's trust within many organizations. Lower-level managers have some degree of discretion. They can innovate, they can change systems, they can deal with customers in particular ways. And a number of studies of American business by Sir Nicholas Bloom have found this element of trust and ability and willingness to delegate is really central to the productivity of American big business. And I, not in any MBA program, not in any CFA program, not, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you have these trust exercises where you're supposed to fall in, fall into the arms of the person behind you. I've had to endure them in my corporation, but uh, that's not really uh, the same thing as uh, the the you know what you're describing. No, it's how people behave when there are real stakes at hand, and what you've observed working in your company, the freedoms you've been given, the rewards and penalties, who it is you see getting rewarded for doing what. Uh, it's hard to build trust in an organization, but it's what you do in a sense when no one is watching that ultimately in the long run is what gets seen. Yeah, and you have a, a very nice, a lot of vignettes in the book about you know, successful businesses and successful business leaders, uh, you know, ask what's the key, uh, what's the key? And it, it's not what you would expect. It's not, uh, it's not that they came up with a more successful widget or a better supply chain. They'll say it's the corporate culture and or, you know, variants of the soft, the, the trust that you identify as the key to these businesses. 
And that's very hard to replicate. And we see now during the COVID-19 lockdowns, how much a lot of well-running businesses are able to go on a kind of automatic pilot where people are not even seeing each other, but they know what to expect. They know how to coordinate. They can communicate to each other very quickly, uh, you know, using slight cues. And for a lot of companies, it's gone actually phenomenally well. It's uh, one of the great virtues of our system is that even though our world is shut down, so many American businesses are still doing an excellent job. And, you know, the, uh, all of the interviews I've had and in, in, in my day job of analyzing companies, there's a, there's a, pre, a pre-COVID form of analysis and a post-COVID form of analysis. And indeed, uh, it's possible, you know, your book was written in 2018, published in 2019, uh, paperback issue now. It's, you know, some businesses are, are uh, looking better and better from a societal perspective because of their efforts in, in this, this period of stress. That, however, has a long way to go. You spend quite a bit of time on the vilification of big business in the media and in the popular imagination among the, shall we call them the chattering classes? Uh, the vilification of business, of big business is, is uh, there's a lot of it, to, uh, a lot of it there out there. I think it's important that we do criticize big business when it does wrong. So if you look lately at meatpacking plants, while I don't mm-hmm. have firsthand knowledge of those situations, it does seem they've paid too many workers to show up for work when they might be sick. But if you ask yourself, which are the institutions in American society that have risen to the occasion, performed the best? Uh, It is companies like Zoom, companies like Amazon, Netflix, internet connections. Internet has been hit by this flood of additional use very quickly. Uh, It's held up remarkably well. Facebook, uh, a lot of the big businesses have been there for us, frankly. And uh, life has kept on going for that reason. And I think people are starting to see that. Uh, uh, you and I are probably old enough to remember Rowan and Martin uh, Laugh-In Show and uh, Lily Tomlin doing uh, The Phone Company. Um, now the phone company is kind of, you know, not necessarily a hero, but the phone company is uh, pretty important to everyone. And I think they have a greater appreciation of it, among many other uh, small businesses, certainly in my community. Let, let's get to some of the, the meat of, of your argument where you uh, pick out the sensitive issues, overpaid CEOs, um, technology companies, uh, Wall Street, and take them on head on as to the standard challenges that are made by, the, um, by that accepted wisdom that these are, uh, um, I exaggerate, for the purposes of this conversation, that they're evil and contribute mightily to inequality. And you, you go through in a fairly quick way, and it, it's not a very long book, uh, so it's an easy read, uh, you know, those key issues and, and debunk them, uh, if not definitively, then at least uh, to give people pause to, to think. Do you want to cover some of those highlights? Well, sure. Let's just talk for a moment about CEO pay. If you look at the pay of American CEOs, it has gone up a fair amount. But it's gone up pretty much in strict proportion with the value of American companies. So CEOs at large companies are paid in terms of equity and options, which, of course, are worth more when the companies are worth more. That's to incentivize them. That makes sense. Uh, If the companies become more valuable, those people earn more. Uh, I'm not saying I have the final dictate on exactly which distribution of wealth is fair, but mostly it is not a crooked process. 
It is based on value creation. It's based on a supply and demand for CEOs. The evidence doesn't support the claim that the pay is just set by their, you know, insider buddies on the board. Actually, companies hire many more outsiders than they used to. So again, there are particular CEOs who are overpaid, but the value of a good CEO is so high. In essence, the market is scrambling to find the good ones, as they would with, say, an athlete or a basketball or football draft pick. Some end up overpaid. The best ones are underpaid. Uh, it's a much more rational process than many people believe. And I, I think your analogy, which is extended in the book about uh, you know management teams choosing uh, an athlete and willing to pay up, and then sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't, we would generally view that as decision-making, whether successful or unsuccessful, but we don't view it as evil. If you overpay a baseball player, it's a bad decision. It's not, it's not uh, a, a moral issue. Um, and you're extending that to, to the CEOs. Uh, so it's, it's a different perspective than what normally encounters in this type of, uh, of uh, literature. You also do venture into the belly of the beast, into Wall Street, uh, uh, Brave Man, and uh, uh, point out that it's not all your um, self-interest and uh, uh, depredation of the economy uh, there. Well, on the financial sector, first, I would admit uh, it does deserve a fair share of the blame for the financial crisis of 2008-2009. Uh, we shouldn't run away from that issue. There was some degree of corruption, but by far the most significant villain, if you're looking for one, was over-optimism. There was over-optimism in virtually every sector of the economy. Uh, I think we should view it in those terms. American consumers also were overextended. And it is the case that capitalist economies periodically, perhaps every 70 or 80 years, if things have been good for a while, people get too optimistic and take on too much debt. And that's a more important part of the story than, say, crooked bankers. But I would just say overall, if you look at American capital markets and ask the key question, how good a job do they do getting capital into growing sectors and out of declining sectors? I think it's pretty clear uh, those are the best capital markets in the world. We have venture capital. It's driven a lot of American innovation. Uh, it's helped make the dollar, you know, the world's currency so we all can borrow at cheaper rates. The financial sector has done a great deal for Americans. And again, I don't think we should run away from the negatives. But if you read the media or speak to a lot of people, all you hear is the negatives and never those offsetting positives. And uh, I, I recommend even to critics of your position to at least to, to grab this book. Again, it is a, a straightforward read to at least be presented with those counter arguments. Uh, so, as it were, you're, you're familiar with them, because, again, in the popular media, it's easy to completely avoid uh, any uh, mention of, of the positive role of business. Uh, you also take up the tech companies where, you know, uh, big tech has become the the new uh, variant of big business that uh, is going to uh, um, take over one day, I guess, whatever whatever conspiracy theory you want to subscribe to. Uh, it's hard to argue with the success of these tech giants, but and there's a fair concern about privacy issues. But uh, you know, you you also highlight there how uh, the good needs to be uh, seen with the bad as well. The big tech companies give us amazing products that we wouldn't have really dreamed possible. 20 or even 15 years ago, we often get them for free. Or Amazon is not free, but it's typically very good prices, amazing 
service and delivery. Uh, they've really just reshaped how we use our time, our ability to track down information or do research or learn things or find like-minded people. It's just far greater than a fairly short time ago. Uh, any change that big is going to have negatives. Again, I, I don't think we should be shy about admitting that. But my goodness, I mean, talk about companies that have really delivered us amazing products at incredible prices. And I think that's big tech for you right there in a nutshell. And then uh, the discussion of big tech and, and some of the other businesses leads to an older paradigm of discussion, a hundred-year-old paradigm of discussion uh, uh, for the critics of, of a market system, which is monopolies. And uh, you know, you have some interesting data about uh, how what appear to be monopolies in a rapidly developing and dynamic uh, economy really aren't. And uh, you know, they have to remain as nimble as not in order to maintain their market position. But uh, that, you know, there, these are, there are some natural monopolies because it's most efficient, but uh, even the, uh, those that are not natural are, uh, you know, if they don't run very, very fast, someone else will run past them. You know, people like to say, oh, Facebook has a monopoly on social networks. It's really not true. If you look at the recent incredible growth in Fortnite or in gaming, uh, those are also ways people network with each other. Just how much we text each other on our phones. You can still send an email. Uh, at least pre-COVID, you could go knock on your neighbor's door, make a phone call. There were just so many methods of social networking. Facebook, of course, has incredible reach. But it faces so much competition for your time, including Twitter, including blogs, including, you know, TikTok, uh, including YouTube also. So the tech world has a lot more competition than it looks at first. My, my uh, teenager laughs at me that I use Facebook. Uh, who, other than people about to step into the grave, use Facebook, according to a teenager? And uh, he to my surprise, has moved even beyond email and to some extent even beyond texting uh, to communication through those platforms, whether it's the gaming platforms, which permit messaging, or uh, you know, other platforms, uh, social media platforms like House Party and, and uh, Snapchat and so forth, which also provide messaging. So uh, to the extent I understand him, which isn't much of the time, uh, what I consider modern uh, social networking is, in fact, uh, dated, uh, out-of-date uh, social network for, for the younger generation. So it's, uh, it's a rapidly changing environment, to say the least. That's correct. And that's one reason why Facebook isn't charging us, say, $1,000 a year for access. They know people would go somewhere else. And they bought, they bought some of these other programs in order to try to keep up. But they've so, upgraded them. You know, we get WhatsApp for free. We get Instagram for free. People talk about this like it's some kind of terrible situation. But if you just look like, where's the beef? Where's the actual loss? Uh, you know, it's fine to be concerned with privacy, as I am as well. But your data is probably safer in a large, very well-endowed company than if it were just like scattered everywhere across all of these tiny little Facebook companies. So we... We've covered kind of the high ground here, and I want to shift now to what is your major point. And I, I think it's phrased really, really well. If if the uh, corporation's big business isn't as as bad as it is uh, cast to be, then then why do so many people uh, view it in 
in, um, in such negative terms. And at the beginning, you hinted this, but then towards the you know the last third or quarter of the book, you you really spent a lot of time on on the human behavior uh, associated with how we view corporations. But the phrase near the beginning is you know the the, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in the corporations, but in ourselves. Um, you know, if look in the mirror and try to understand why we distrust big business so much. And then you last, as I said, quarter of the book, you elaborate on uh, the anthropomorphication of anthropomorphizing of, of business and the complex nature of that, of our relationship with trust organizations. And if we treat a business as a person, and this is not talking about uh, uh, Citizens United, but uh and that it, it leads to a lot of complexity. It's a very interesting argument. Can you provide some of the highlights of that? Well, I think one thing going on today is in American society, people trust most institutions less. They trust Congress less. They trust the political parties less. And uh, they trust organized religion less. So big business receives part of that brunt, whether or not it deserves it. And I do think some things have gone wrong in our society. Uh, you know, we could talk about what's caused that. I would say it's highly complex, but I don't view big business as the main villain. Actually, I see it as a partial offset. But I think the other factor is we are beings that evolved in a setting of either hunter-gatherers or small villages, and we're used to applying very personal standards to institutions. We're not always good at theorizing or abstract thought or seeing an entire macroeconomic picture. So we evaluate big businesses as if they were our friends. And, you know, if you think a business is supposed to be your friend, uh, they will let you down somewhat. So, oh, you have a problem with your iPhone, you're on the helpline, they don't get to your call quickly enough. Uh, you feel they're not treating you the way a friend should treat you. And so you get upset at them. So I think it's the desire of people to take their highly personal standards and use those to criticize and evaluate what are, in essence, impersonal institutions that leads us wrong. Yeah, but the as you point out, those impersonal institutions spend an enormous amount of time trying to pretend to be, not pretend to be, but to act as trust institutions that are themselves have personalities. Uh, and they have reputations, important part of your argument, and that uh, they don't want to damage those reputations as people themselves do, so that they... They do uh, the behavior of corporations of businesses to uh, kind of be f friends with their customers. There's a business reason for it, but it seems your argument would be that it, it lends itself to how humans are wired to begin with. That's right. The businesses clearly encourage this. So, you know, if you deal with your insurance company, they will talk to you, advertise to you as if they are your friend. We will take care of you in hard times. Well, it's clear why they do that. There's a marketing reason. It's not entirely sincere. Uh, they may be the best available institution for insurance, but of course, they're not your friend, right? They're a business. Uh, they have a primary purpose of making money. Fortunately, they face competition. Uh, but when the time comes and they don't say reimburse everything you feel you deserve, you feel like your friend has betrayed you. And it you know, gets more elaborate in your argument that this can lead to sort of pathologies, as it were, and uh, just steal some of your thunder, that uh, eventually you become perpetually disappointed. The p risk of being potentially uh, dis uh, perpetually disappointed when uh, an individual's primal trust versus 
the impersonal nature of a, of a commercial or economic reality, when those two things clash, big business looks bad. That's right. Another way to think about it is capitalism, to some extent, gets us to buy into it by overpromising. It is, in fact, a good thing that we buy into it, but we also notice that everyone's overpromising, and we resent that. We hold that against capitalism. Many people become socialists. They acquire grudges against particular businesses. Uh, of course, some of those grudges are justified, but a lot of them are not, and they end up not trusting big business as a whole. So what's, what's the, the solution if there is a solution to get these two sides uh, to a position where there's less mis, mis, misunderstanding, greater understanding? You, you, you advocate that businesses really need to work harder to some extent in this notion that people are going to trust them, therefore they better be trustworthy. Yes, businesses need to work harder at deserving trust, but also our media needs a better and more sophisticated understanding of business, which you find sometimes, but by no means always. Uh, but also we as individuals, uh, I mean, my book itself is an attempt at the margin to put forward this more positive picture. I'd like to see much more in popular culture. Ask a simple question. How many Hollywood movies are there? where big business is the good guy? <laughs> Very few. How many were it's the villain? Well, you know, a lot. That's part of the problem. How, how has the book been received? Uh, the, the hardback came out uh, a year ago, and has there been any change pre and post-COVID as to the, uh, the pushback uh, that you've received or any of the ongoing commentary, uh, as I said, pre and post-COVID? A lot of people have written me about the book, that they appreciated it. There have been a lot of reviews. Uh, they're all sort of cautiously, well, this guy has a point, but I can't bring myself to actually believe this sorts of reviews. So I would say they're positive, but people are just being asked to, to give up too much of their worldview, and they can't quite do it. But they'll say, well, I don't actually have a reply to all of these arguments either. We'll see how post-COVID evolves. But as I said, I think our government has done a pretty poor job preparing us for the pandemic. And most businesses, with some exceptions, but most have come through really well and been prepared and been early with social distancing or letting people work from a distance. Uh, so I think actually right now, the reputation of big business is going up quite a bit. We'll see how things develop. Well, uh Thank you, Tyler Cowan. The book is Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Anti-Hero. I've appreciated having you on the show. And for listeners, in addition to the book, for an ongoing analysis of that debate, that relationship, that tension uh, between call it society and big business, again, please uh, follow Professor Cowan's uh, podcast, Conversations with Tyler, as well as his uh, blog, uh, Marginal Revolution. Uh, Tyler Cowan, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.